the Alberta test includes a very broad range of conduct that includes conduct outside of the court system. So for example, if a court wants to say, I find you vexatious, in theory under the test, they could rely on nothing but your Facebook posts. I would suggest that this is a particularly strong statement from the Court of Appeal. It's a reserve judgment. It's a unanimous judgment. Yeah. It's a judgment that was issued concurrently with two other judgments, uh, Macus and Wong. Yeah. And together, Limer, Macus, and Wong um, really comprehensively address the issue of vexatious litigants in a number of circumstances. Hello, and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the Project Coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. You know, as we are now doing in every episode, because we're, we're trying to really get our wonderful podcast out there, uh, we want to encourage you, if you haven't already, to like and subscribe. You can do that on SoundCloud. Uh, we would love you to do it on iTunes and to go in there and uh, leave us a rating and maybe even a review, because that really helps us uh, bump up the charts on iTunes, and we would love to just become world famous. We wanted to take a second to say that this episode will be the last time that you will hear the wonderful Ali Tajani on In Other News. Ali is graduating. He is one of our student research assistants who has finished their, their third year of law school, and they're headed off into the wide world. But actually, we should plug that, you know, later on this season, you will hear from Ali and our three other graduating RAs, and they will come on the podcast and talk about their experience with the NSRLP and what they've learned. But we just wanted to take a second to single out Ali and thank him so much for the incredible job he's done with In Other News over the last couple of years. Uh, we're going to sorely miss him. He's, he's just really wonderful. created this as as an as a as a niche as something yeah. that I think is a really valuable and important part of the podcast, and he's not replaceable, and we are going to really miss him very very much. But we do have quite exciting news mm, yeah. about a guest who's going to be taking over from Ali for the last three podcasts of the season and doing in other news. Yes. Uh, we're very excited to announce that our uh, cameo in other news presenter will be the wonderful Jordan Furlong, mm. who was on the episode that went completely viral, <laughs> in, at least in terms of our <laughs> understanding of viral, um, a few weeks ago. So we know that Jordan's going to do just a fantastic job, and we'll find some really interesting uh, tidbits out there. So look forward to hearing from Jordan for the last three episodes episodes of the season. Um, but again, we want to say thank you, Ali, and we will miss you. The main part of today's episode, or our main topic today, is a really uh, interesting case that we've been involved in over the last number of months. Before I turn it over to Julie to give a little context and a little introduction to our guest, for the episode, I just want to take a minute and point out the wonderful Bronte, who is our uh, podcast editor, um, pointed out to me as she was doing the edits for Julie's conversation with our guests that she misunderstood the name on the case. Uh, she 
I apparently thought that they were saying llama every time they referred to the case. And we just want to clarify, because I'm guessing if she made that mistake, there will be others. The name of uh, is actually Limer, not llama. So uh, just so you're all aware, <laughs> no llamas are involved in this matter. Yes, the, no harm was done to any animals in the recording of this episode. It is, no. in fact, Johnson and Lima. L-Y-M-E-R. This is a decision that NSRLP intervened in with the assistance of two amazing legal counsel who did this pro bono for us, Colin Seesby of uh, Overhoskin Harcourt in Calgary and Bryn Harding of Bennett Jones in Calgary. And they have been incredible people to work with on this case. You may remember Colin was um, the person who represented Mr. Pintea in the Supreme Court of Canada a couple of years ago. So you're going to hear my conversation with them, which first of all talks about what they were hoping to achieve with this case at the Court of Appeal in Alberta and what the problems were that the case was trying to address. And to put it very simply, the problem was the very expansive use of vexatious litigant designation by the Alberta Queen's Bench, begun to extend into areas that we have never seen before when it comes to vexatiousness and go well beyond the Judicature Act and the the usual approach, which is to only ever do this in very extreme circumstances. Mm-hmm. You're then going to hear a second conversation, which we taped uh, right after the decision came out, uh, which it did on May the 1st. Uh, and the decision has completely uh, agreed with, upheld, if you like, all of the arguments Bryn and Colin were making for us on behalf of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. Again, we were an intervener, not a party. But the court has accepted that, as it was argued, that this is far too consequential a decision. To decide that somebody is, quote-unquote, vexatious means that they are barred from the courts. And that's far too important a decision to be taken in anything other than the very most extreme circumstances. So we're excited for you to hear this conversation very excited about the outcome here and there will be a commentary on this decision uh, on Canley Connects by the time you're listening to this which we will link to on the podcast page. Thank you very much, Colin and Bryn, for being willing to talk to me this morning about a topic that we hear a great deal about from self-represented litigants, and that is the idea of vexatiousness. And for some self-represented litigants who have been designated as vexatious, this means they can't come back to court, which obviously is a fairly big impact. And I wanted to talk to you today about how you see the courts going about using this measure of who is considered to be vexatious. We all know that there has to be some efficiencies here if the court feels that publicly funded time is being wasted on a matter that has no merit, and I'm sure we can all agree on that. But this is a very complicated concept to put into practice. So, Colin, can I start by asking you, Could you explain a little bit about some of the ways we're seeing this idea of vexatiousness being used to exclude people from the courts? 
Sure. Well, vexatiousness, and I think this will come through in the discussion, is to some degree in the eye of the beholder. And judges, quite understandably, are wanting to deal with the problem of vexatiousness. They're, they're busy. They're, they're dealing with courts that yeah. don't have all of the resources that you might want them to have in an ideal situation. And so they find themselves dealing with cases that take more time than they believe that they should if they were run efficiently by, you know, experienced counsel. The reality is not everybody can afford experienced counsel for one reason or another. People are self-represented and self-represented people are more likely to be confused or emotional or adopt inappropriate strategies out of lack of experience or knowledge. So, Bryn, can, can I just ask you to explain, you know, if you can in, in a few sentences, you know, what have we generally seen courts seeing as vexatious behavior? What kinds of things are typically seen as being behavior that results in this vexatiousness? Whether it's a statutory process or whether it is a court-fashioned process, the courts use what they call indicia of vexatiousness. And the indicia include things like using collateral attack. This would be courts perceiving that a litigant is trying to get around an existing order of the court, whether that's an order Mm. that says they have no good case or whether Mm. that's a procedural order that requires them to pursue their claim in a particular way. Another indicium, and I think these are the core ones, what they call hopeless causes. Courts have a lot of confidence that they know a good cause when they see it. And they seem to take the approach that you don't need to have a lot of legal skill to persuade a court that you fundamentally have a cause worth pursuing. And that the kinds of things people become confused about as self-represented litigants are procedural. And so the courts say, well, we know that it's not worth time and money and the court's resources to help you with your claim because your underlying claim is no good. And that's sort of the the core indicium that they use for vexatiousness. And then the other uh, things they use, they say things like incomprehensible arguments or allegations, failure to pay costs. So they can't use that tool in their armory to say, please don't come back to court with this matter. And if you do, it's going to cost you a lot of money. They usually would use a cost award, but if someone's unable to pay a cost award, then the court feels enfeebled when it comes to dealing with that litigant. And the other, they also use indicia like what they call inappropriate courtroom behavior. That would include things like using emotional or inflammatory or scandalous language, which given that the context of many court proceedings is a dispute, it's actually not difficult to understand that that kind of language and, and feelings and behavior may become part of the courtroom. And that's actually where I wanted to ask both of you, you know, another question related to this that I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this, especially if they haven't heard about the idea of vexatiousness before or only have, you know, a fairly vague idea of it, would want to ask, which is if vexatiousness means having a hopeless case, is there a reason that we don't generally see this being applied to parties who are represented by lawyers? In other words, lawyers bringing forward arguments that may not seem to have much merit, but we don't tend to hear about them being designated as vexatious. Colin, can you comment on that? Well, lawyers get the benefit of the doubt. The reason for that is lawyers are familiar with the court and the court is familiar with them. 
and they're familiar with the rituals in the language of the court, and they know how to present a case, even if it's a novel case or a difficult case. They know how to present it in terms that the court will understand and that they will have a certain amount of patience for. The same case presented by somebody without that those skills and that training might well appear uh, to be hopeless. And of course, the way new law is made is through cases which previously wouldn't have been successful. And so yeah, that's great the, point. That's the, way, that's the way the law grows and changes. And so we do need those kinds of cases coming to the court, but the court is very suspicious if it's presented in a way that is unfamiliar to the court or seems disrespectful to the court. Or, as as Brim was just saying, perhaps with some emotion and so forth, without that professional detachment that we tend to expect from from lawyers. So I know that what we want to get into here now is a case that you have worked on pro bono, very generously, um, for us as interveners at the National Self-Represented Litigants in Alberta. And this is a case in which you were presenting um, our perspective uh, based on research um, in relation to Alberta's approach to vexatiousness. Bryn, could you say a little bit about how that has uh, evolved as a unique approach to defining vexatiousness and different from the rest of the country? In Alberta, like in many other provinces, there is a procedure for making a vexatious litigant order against someone, and that procedure is in a statute called the Judicature Act. And the procedure in the Judicature Act has certain safeguards. So, for example, it requires if a court or a party is going to seek a vexatious litigant order against someone, that they give notice to the Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Alberta. That's a sort of a pro forma procedural mm. step, often the minister doesn't show up. But what it signals in the act is how seriously Serious. the yes. legislature takes this procedure. So that's mm. one important safeguard. The other one that we see in the Judicature Act is that there are a list of features of vexatious litigant of vexatious litigation or vexatious litigants that are set out and each feature is described by the word persistently. So, yeah. for example, with reference to the hopeless cases uh, in Disham, it's not that you are vexatious if you have made an attempt to pursue your claim and the way you articulated it is hopeless. That doesn't make you vexatious. Under the Judicature Act, you're only vexatious if you are turned away from the court, if you are told your argument is no good, if you're told to reframe it and you are persistent in that you behavior. You do it over and over again, right. And persistently yeah. probably isn't twice. It's probably more than twice. So what that right. really does is it eliminates the possibility that we're making vexatious litigant orders against people who are just making mistakes. Right. And it tries to seek out people who are either intentionally abusing the court's process or are really beyond help who cannot take the direction of the court when that direction is repeatedly given to them. And so what Alberta has done, the courts have done, is they say they don't like the Judicature Act process because it takes too long, and they've created a court-fashioned process that doesn't have those safeguards. And so to be brief about it, the Alberta 
common law process, first of all, it's forward-looking, so a judge doesn't have to see that you have been vexatious. They mm. have to say they believe it's plausible that you will be vexatious. They suspect so. They suspect so. The standard is plausibility, which is not a legal standard of proof. And then finally, the Alberta test includes a very broad range of conduct that includes conduct outside of the court system. So, for mm -hmm. example, if a court wants to say, I find you vexatious, in theory, under the test, they could rely on nothing but your Facebook posts. Um, in order so, to Colin, can I, can I just come to you and ask you, then, in light of, of Bryn's explanation, could you explain why you worked on the intervention in this particular case, the Lima case, in the Alberta Court of Appeal, and what were you trying to get the court to clarify about its procedures around vexatiousness? The why is, is I think, an easy one. It, and this is really the first case where this unique Alberta approach is under serious scrutiny by our Court mm. of Appeal. So this is a a process that's been largely developed and applied at the Queen's bench level, the trial level. And in addition to the Limer case that we intervened in, there were two other cases heard yes. at the same time, which also raised the same issue, which really indicates that this is an opportunity for the Alberta Court of Appeal to have its say on this process. And because of that, it was really important that uh, the National Self-Represented Litigants Project's project be involved in this case, because this case will set the tone uh, for the foreseeable future. So we don't know what they're going to say, but it's going to be very important on this point. So that's why we got involved. Um, in terms of what we were trying to accomplish is we wanted to bring a broader perspective to the appeal. Um, the parties obviously have their own specific issues that they're concerned about, but we wanted to to, to raise many of the issues that Bryn's just been talking about, the, the, the problems with the test, how a test, if they're going to persist with it, how it can become more fair. And th those are really the, the essence of, of our submissions and what we're trying to accomplish. And, you know, I want everybody who's listening to this to understand that uh, y you both worked on this uh, for NSRLP pro bono in your own time, something that we are enormously grateful for. And Colin, you have previously done some pro bono work in the Supreme Court of Canada case, which we also intervened in, but you were the representative of Mr. Pintea, the self-represented litigant there. Another way in which you have both helped us enormously and, and specifically Bryn has helped us is in relation to our ongoing project we call the Self-Represented Litigant Case Law Database, where we're trying to track what's happening in, in cases across the country. And we recently put out a report in which we described what we are calling vexatiousness light. This is where we don't actually see somebody being barred from the courts in a formal way, but they may be described by judges, and this is across Canada, not just in Alberta, as, as having been problematic in some way, and they're punished in a different sort of way. For example, their cost awards against them are higher, even though they're not formally being designated as vexatious. And, and there seems to be a, a question of punishment for what is perceived to be bad behavior and raises all these issues about 
is this being done deliberately? Is it being done because whatever the court is is seeing is problematic? Is it because of genuine confusion? Should somebody representing themselves be, be penalized? So I'll focus on two main questions that I hear um, in your question, Julia. I think the first one is about the intention of the litigant. Does the court know whether a, a litigant is being intentionally bad or abusive or weaponizing the court's process. My comment on that is that because we hear all the time that the courts are highly stressed as far as their resources mm. and that the judges themselves are stressed by that resource shortage, we have to understand that the court itself is an interested party in matters involving so-called vexatious litigants. In other words, the court has an interest in trying right. to control yes. the phenomenon. And what we see in decisions about vexatious litigants is the courts always control the narrative because the court is the one who writes the decision. Mm. And so when you have two parties to a dispute, one of those parties will always have the pen at the end of it. And so you hear about the behavior of a litigant, but you only hear about that behavior from the perspective of the court. And, of course, this litigant is not a sophisticated party, typically, that has the power and legal skills to push back against right. that characterization. Yes. So when you ask about are people being intentionally bad, I think probably sometimes, not other times. And that's but we just don't almost know. impossible. We don't know. We can't filter yeah. that through the court's reasons. Is that there are serious harms that come from denying people access to the court. And that access is typically denied along lines that we could call uh, systemically discriminatory. Yeah. Um, and so very often these orders are made against people who are members of marginalized groups. And so um, the harm that is inflicted when courts deny access to a litigant I would call that, in addition to harming the reputation of the courts and society, say it also inflicts a dignitarian harm. So it harms the dignity of the individual who has come to the court. And that's also, in my opinion, a harm to society. Um, and I wanted to just briefly give you an example of a case mm -hmm. where I think that the court has done a really good job of handling a legally weak argument. Um, so there's a case from the federal court of appeal in 2018 called Maximova. Yes. And that's a case where a woman claimed the child tax benefit and she was separated from her spouse. When you're separated, you have to actually prove that your spouse, your former spouse, didn't claim the child tax benefit as well. Right. But this woman's spouse had absconded and she didn't know where he was. So she brought an act action in the federal court against the CRA for discriminating against her on the basis of marital status. Hmm. Now, that's not the way it works. That wasn't discrimination on the mm -hmm. basis of marital status within the meaning of the law. And so Maximova was someone who could easily have been slapped with a vexatious litigant order on a low standard. But what the court actually did was say, you know, this is not actionable, but what we see is that you were treated badly by the CRA and that the CRA's treatment of you fell below the standard that is expected of an agent of the Canadian state. And I don't know if that helped her, but I do think that it respected her. And I think it's important to contrast that tone to the tone of uh, ridicule and disrespect that often characterizes vexatious litigant order. 
And so I think when you look at what was the cost of just hearing out her complaint, um, and was that outweighed by, you know, the benefit of acknowledging the harm that she had suffered? I think these are important questions for courts to take seriously and uh, not sort of treat this question of punishment lightly. That's a great example, Bryn. And, you know, the, the other thing that strikes me about the example is that, that another of the harms that was potentially going to be visited on this individual was financial, uh, which is something that we see in these vexatiousness light cases where people are uh, hit with very high costs. And in fact, in the Pintea case, Colin, um, was one of the reasons that the Supreme Court of Canada, um, you know, because Mr. Pintea had been ordered to pay a very high cost amount, um, and that was one of the reasons that they were willing to intervene and set that aside. So do you want to comment on, on Pintea in this context, Colin? Sure. I, I think you're um, categorizing Pintea as a vexatiousness light type of case is probably appropriate. Um, he was certainly well-intentioned, uh, but very challenged in his dealings with the court. And the court was certainly frustrated with his inability to navigate the court system. And uh, while he wasn't declared vexatious, you could see under the current environment with the new uh, test that he might have been mm. if, if it had been around at the time. And certainly the court, um, in dismissing his claim and awarding a very large cost, awarding something in the neighborhood of $80,000, mm -hmm. um, was really treating him uh, in some ways like you see some of these vexatious, uh, this light cases being, being uh, treated. So um, I think it is meaningful that the Supreme Court granted leave in that case, and I think it is meaningful that they reversed the Alberta Court of Appeal and, and um, the lower court uh, in that case. And uh, I, I think that the most important thing about Pintea may not be the endorsement of the Statement of Principles from the Canadian Judicial Council, but simply the fact of reversing uh, what was a very unfair outcome. Against Mr. Pintea, yes. So... We're waiting on the decision, of course, in Lima and the other cases. Um, and given the current situation in the courts, um, we're not really clear, of course, how long we're going to be waiting. And hopefully when that does come through, we can talk about it again on the podcast. But I can't leave you both today without asking you um, the obvious question that I'm really curious about, which is, how has your practice changed in the last couple of weeks since the COVID-19 restrictions came down? Um, and, you know, how, how is it to do a day at the virtual office? Each of you, Bryn, do you want to start? Actually, I save time on my commute now, and I also save oh. time getting people out the door in the morning. Typically, between 6 a.m. and 8.30, I don't get any billable work done. I'm busy with my kids and getting myself ready and out the door. And now yeah. I have that time, and I have time at the end of the day, and that means for me I do more of my work now when the sun is up um, <laughs> because the alternative for me is always to do it at night, late at night. Right. That can be right. very tiring. So also, honestly, it is kind of nice to just be near the kids and be able to step out of my office door and check on them or hug them. Like so, 
Colin, how about you? Well, people are really challenged the people who don't have work. <laughs> right. But but the, the people who who are working are challenged are the people who live alone or the people who have yes. small children because it presents lots of challenges. Um, I have I have children who are uh, young adults and um, they sleep in and they feed themselves. <laughs> you know, hopefully this ends soon, but uh, it hasn't been too bad. Well, I really appreciate both of you taking time out of what is obviously still a very busy work day for both of you to talk to me today. And I hope that we can bring you back when we have the Lima decision to talk about. Thank you both very much. Thanks, Julie. Thanks, Julie. So, Colin and Bren, thank you so much for getting back on the line again with me uh, today to talk about what happened last Friday when the Alberta Court of Appeal issued their decision in Lima. And I'm very happy that we have an outcome here that we believe has been very helpful in clarifying vexatiousness in relation to self-represented litigants. So, Bryn, could you begin by saying something for our listeners about what the court decided here, about that the Alberta Queen's Bench was arguing applied to vexatiousness and what it means to return to the Judicature Act now? The issue before the Court of Appeal was whether the Court of Queen's Bench could use its own new process to make vexatious litigant orders. And what the Court of Appeal ruled is that if the Court of Queen's Bench has that power at all, which the Court of Appeal says that it does, that power is subordinate to and governed by the Judicature Act. What that means practically is that the process in the Judicature Act is a requirement that the Court of Queen's Bench has to follow. And it's only in circumstances where uh, the Court of Appeal uses the word proven, where the Court of Queen's Bench is able to prove that the Judicature Act process does not apply in a satisfactory way to the circumstances that they can rely on their inherent jurisdiction. So what they're basically saying is it's going to be in very exceptional cases, and it's going to be very rare that they're going to step outside the Judicature Act. And so to move to the second part of your question, well, what does that mean? The Judicature Act has three fundamental requirements. The first one is that the conduct that is vexatious has got to be persistent. Right. So you can't end up with a vexatious litigant order from a one-off. Bring, can I just add based on speculation, based on people's past behaviors or even character and affiliations outside the court. It has to be something that's actually happened. That's right. That's right. The Judicature Act requires the court to establish that there is a persistent pattern of abusive conduct. And the only conduct that counts as part of the pattern is conduct in the justice system, so in the court system. You can't be found to be persistent because you've been talking to your neighbors about your point of view right. uh, about your court case. So it's only conduct in the justice system. So the three things are persistence, number two, notice to the Minister of Justice and Attorney General, which means the court has got to go through the formality of sending notice to the Minister of Justice. Right, which is a big deal. Make a huge, 
Well, it is. It is. It makes the process longer, and it gives the Minister mm. of Justice the opportunity to appear at an application. Mm. And then the third thing, which is connected to that, is it does require a hearing in person. So this isn't going to – you're not going to find yourself subject to a vexatious litigant order because the court exchanged a couple of letters with you and the opposing party. So these are all indications that the legislature thinks vexatious litigant orders are serious. That's why these requirements are there. And the Court of Appeal has said it is serious. And so you do have to uh, follow these requirements. And we were very encouraged at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project that there was such a strong emphasis placed on the, the seriousness of making an order like this because of the extent to which it deprives people, obviously, of access to the courts. Colin, what do you think this sends to other courts in terms of the messaging about how self-represented litigants should be treated and indeed, you know, at what point is it appropriate to take the drastic step of barring them from courts by saying, designating them as vexatious? I would suggest that this is a particularly strong statement from the Court of Appeal. It's a reserve judgment. It's a unanimous judgment. It's a judgment that was issued concurrently with two other judgments, uh, Macus and Wong, and together, Limer, Macus, and Wong um, really comprehensively addressed the issue of vexatious litigants in a number of circumstances. And it's unusual to see the Court of Appeal uh, tackle an issue quite in this way. And Can you say more about that? What that means, Colin, it's unusual. Well, they gave leave to to these cases and heard them all together. Right. All dealing with the question of vexatiousness. That's right. And they issued the decisions on the same day, and the decisions are very clearly dependent on one another. And this reflects an unusually clear statement of intent from the Court of Appeal that the process that had been used by the Court of Queen's Bench for um, several years now has to change. Yeah. And and the, the judges of the Court of Queen's Bench uh, will not um, miss or mistake that intent from the Court of Appeal. It's, it's absolutely clear. And what about in the rest of the country? Do you think this sends any larger messages? Well, as we discussed earlier, uh, Alberta was somewhat of an outlier yes. in, in using the inherent jurisdiction approach. Uh, and while it does not definitively end resort to inherent jurisdiction, it certainly limits it. Uh, and I think it will be seen by the rest of the country as a signal that Alberta's approach is not one to be followed. And I think it makes it very difficult for courts in the rest of the country to to rely upon those earlier Alberta precedents. And I would suggest that other courts of appeal would take the Alberta Court of Appeals decision here very seriously. And one of the questions that we've been asked a lot since the decision came out of the project is if you've already been declared a vexatious litigant under the inherent jurisdiction um, procedure as was in the Alberta Queen's Bench, can you do anything about that now? So the answer to that is not a straightforward answer, unfortunately. There's There's no rule in the Alberta Rules of Court that says, this rule can be used for discharging an order 
including a vexatious litigant order. Rule 9.15 sub 4 has some potential because although its language does not specifically cover a vexatious litigant order or analogous orders, the rule has been interpreted as a broad power to overturn orders of that very court for Mm -hmm. a variety of reasons because the court has essentially identified that the order is unjust in some way. So although it doesn't expressly cover it, it has interpreted, it has been interpreted to be broader than its language. The other option is that uh, an originating application could be brought on the basis that there is no defendant to be served. So obviously that depends on the particular self-represented litigant subject to the order. If there is a defendant to be served, then that would not be an appropriate process. Right. So those are a couple of options, but those unfortunately options. there's no perfect answer. No, mm-hmm. and, and I mean, it certainly sounds from what you said like it might be unfortunately suck it up for people to whom this has already happened, but they at least can feel that it's not likely to happen to others who come after them. Both of you, thank you so much for your work on this case. We, you know, we couldn't be more grateful and prouder of what you've done here. And I know that there are a lot of self-represented litigants up and down the country, but especially in Alberta, who are going to want to say thank you. So thank you so much, both of you. Thank Thank you, Julie. Julie. It's been a pleasure to work with uh, you and uh, with the project. Thank you. Absolutely. In Other News Welcome back to the In Other News segment of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. For any new listeners, this segment is all about summarizing news stories in the world of access to justice. For our first update, some more news about NSRLP's COVID-19 resources. We've continued to update our existing resources, and we've added a new resource all about virtual witnessing of wills and powers of attorney. Just like our other resources, this resource features legal information from across the country and is organized by province. This is a handy guide on navigating this emerging result of distancing measures. All of these resources are available under the News tab of our website under the COVID-19 Resources subheading. Next up, as a reminder, we're also looking for Access to Justice All-Stars. We want to showcase some of the incredible access to justice advocates from across Canada who are doing things to make a difference, particularly during the pandemic. Please let us know if there's someone that you'd like to nominate. You can reach us at representingyourself at gmail.com. Since our last episode, we've also posted two important blogs. The first was written by Julie and unpacks some of the concerns about video conferencing and why we need to anticipate and plan for the unintended consequences of changes that are being implemented in response to COVID-19. Julie concludes by reminding us about the need for flexibility, empathy, and data for designing the new normal of justice services after the pandemic. The second blog post was by the Honorable Robert Bauman, Chief Justice of British Columbia, where he summarized the BC Court of Appeals COVID-19 response. This is a great read on how systems should be designed and updated during and after the pandemic. Of course, part of this requires imaginative ideas.
let's continue to challenge each other to think more creatively and to develop solutions that put users at the center of the justice system. Next up, the Ontario Ministry of the Attorney General announced that it will be shifting some of its traditional investments toward innovation and new technology, with the goal of moving more services online and positioning Ontario at the forefront of building the modern justice system of the future. At the federal level of government, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, Richard Wagner, and Federal Justice Minister David Lametti have created an action committee on court operations in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. In a statement about this new task force, Chief Justice Wagner stated, quote, Access to justice is not just a fundamental right. It is a basic human need. It is crucial to our democracy and rule of law, unquote. We're excited to see how this action committee will provide national leadership and find positive ways to advance access to justice during this time. For our last update, in the wake of the Limer decision, NSRLP has launched a mini-fundraising campaign. Prior to COVID-19, NSRLP had plans to launch a major campaign this year called Justice for All. While the official campaign is still mostly on hold, we think Limer and our other work shows just how important NSRLP is. So, we are asking you to help us continue to carve paths for access to justice by making a donation today at representingyourselfcanada.com forward slash donate. For those of you who are unable to donate at this time, please share the link on social media. We could really use your support. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next episode for another thought-provoking conversation.